quest for gold. I'm Ryan Burrow. It was a devastating week for Russian athletes. World Anti-Doping Agency President Craig Reedy announcing... Today, the World Anti-Doping Agency's Executive Committee unanimously endorsed the recommendation made by our Independent Compliance Review Committee that the Russian Anti-Doping Agency be declared non-compliant with the World Anti-Doping Code for a period of four years. The World Anti-Doping Agency determining the Moscow Anti-Doping Lab tampered with data. It means Russia will not be able to compete as a country in the Tokyo Games, in the 2022 Olympics in Beijing, and even the 2022 World Cup. Russian hockey player Alex Ovechkin reacted to the news. Obviously it's uh, sad news, but uh, I think I'm going to have more information uh, later. Uh, but uh, um, it's, it's, it's bad. I feel, uh, feel bad for people who's uh, working so hard in uh, uh, this moment and, uh, um, and they can, can be there. Athletes who wish to participate may do so, but only as an independent. I spoke with our friend USA Volleyball player Lauren Carlini, who is playing with the Russian club team. She says her Russian teammates are not surprised, but are more upset about being viewed badly by the world and media. She also says some of her teammates haven't been tested for years. You can hear more from Lauren in our interview with her in episode 19 of Quest for Gold. Russian tennis player Maria Sharapova, by the way, has already announced she does not plan to participate in the Olympics. The U.S. Olympic team boxing trials underway in Louisiana. 64 men, 40 women all slugging it out. Only those who make the finals in their respective categories will be eligible for a shot at the Olympics. Some news from the athletes we've spoken Spoken to on Quest for Gold, congrats Mark Payton, the USA baseball player from Orland Park. This week got picked up by the Cincinnati Reds organization in the Rule 5 draft. You can hear our interview with Mark in episode 16 of Quest for Gold. Some tough news for our weightlifting friend Maddie Sasser. She announced this week via social media that she's undergone surgery on her left knee. She has not officially ruled out Tokyo 2020. She wants to see how rehab goes first. You can hear our interview with Maddie in episode 9. Congrats to U.S. women's soccer player and Chicago Red Star Julie Ertz, who this week was named U.S. Soccer Female Player of the Year. She beat out teammate Megan Rapino. Also, Northwest Indiana native Robbie Hummel has been named USA Basketball Male Athlete of the Year. He's hoping to compete in Tokyo in the inaugural season of three-on-three Olympic basketball. This week, U.S. Center for Safe Sport announced it had opened up an investigation after a 13-year-old American figure skater claimed she was sent sexually explicit photos by French Olympic pair skater Morgan Seapreece back in 2017. The girls' parents also claim coaches, including Olympians Sylvia Fontana and John Zimmerman, tried to keep the family from reporting the incident to authorities. U.S. Department of Justice also announcing a former South Suburban gymnastics coach has been charged with sexually assaulting a teenage girl he trained at a gym in Shanahan. 69-year-old Jose Vilches is accused of abusing girls in the 80s and 90s. Vilches was a gymnast for Mexico in the 1968 Olympics. He also coached at gyms in Chicago and Wheeling, among others. He's set to go on trial next week. This week, Clint Eastwood's movie Richard Jewell hits theaters. It's the story of Richard Jewell, a wannabe cop who was working security at the time of the 1996 bombing at Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta. He was first heralded a hero for spotting the bomb and clearing the area before eventually being outed as a suspect by the FBI. It's a film that will no doubt rekindle memories of those 1996 games, despite the athletic successes. Gary Strug, Michael Johnson, Carl Lewis, Dream Team Part 2, the bombing marred the games. But does the movie tell the truth, or is there a Hollywood element to it? I spoke with Kent Alexander and Kevin Selwyn, 
co-authors of The Suspect, an Olympic bombing, the FBI, the media, and Richard Jewell, the man caught in the middle. The book goes into depth about the games, the security, and everyone who played a role. Now, before we get into Richard Jewell, who is obviously the main focus of this book, and, and of course the movie that's coming out, I'd like to talk about the, the games in Atlanta in 1996. As you guys reflect on those games 23 years later, it still seems pretty incredible that Atlanta got the bid, really. I mean, that was supposed to be uh, the games for Greece, right? I mean, that was the centennial. Those games were supposed to be in Europe. At least that's where uh, people thought it was going to go, right? Right. Kevin, you want to jump in? Uh, go ahead. You're the local. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm an Atlanta native, and at the time, this is uh, 1990, Atlanta was basically known as Loserville, USA, and Sports Illustrated and elsewhere. So it was shocking that we got the games. I mean, it had been building, the excitement had been building, but we had been so conditioned in Atlanta to losing that uh, the city just went crazy when the games were awarded. So Athens was the front runner. It was the 100th anniversary of the modern games. And Toronto was a huge uh, you know, kind of leader in the pack. But Atlanta, through sort of the strategy of Southern hospitality, uh, working with IOC members, International Olympic Committee members, uh, managed to win it. Are the Olympic Games in 1996 a success story for Atlanta? Decades later, we've seen a lot of cities that, you know, have obviously lost money, uh, emptied out uh, venues, things like that. And it seems like Atlanta, at least, has flourished over the last 20 plus years. Yeah, I'll take that one on. This is Kevin. This, you know, the, the games from a financial perspective were a net positive. Um, you know, that the, um, it left the city without a deficit that was privately funded. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it built in the center of the city the largest urban park that had been built in a quarter century in Centennial Olympic Park. I think from an athletic standpoint, you can look at the games and say, you know, this was the one where Michael Johnson ran in his gold shoes to be the first person to ever win the 200 and 400 meters in the same games. It was a remarkable moment. You had Carrie Strug doing her absolutely um, stunning leap to uh, win the win the gold for the U.S. Uh, women's gymnastics team. And, and there were so many moments like that. Of course, you know, there's this significant asterisk about the Atlanta Games. This was before 9-11, but there were still plenty of security concerns at that point. We know about Munich 20 years earlier, but even domestically, there were issues that the Fed, state, and local government had to be concerned about. Um, and it seemed as though, at least the way you guys tell it, uh, there there was concern, and, and they were taking it seriously. There were huge concerns at the time. We'd had Oklahoma City that... Uh, it happened just in 1995. You had the World Trade Center first bombing, which was early 90s. You had Ruby Ridge, Waco. So you had domestic terrorism and just an inkling that international terrorism could come. So law enforcement spent several years before the Olympics preparing for the games and secure, to secure the games. And at the games themselves, there were 30,000 security personnel, law enforcement, military, uh, and, and private security members like Richard Jewell. Yeah, let, let's get to him now. Before the 1996 Olympics, who was he? Where did he come from? Kind of what got him to that point? Richard Jewell was a suburban kid who always longed to be a rural kid. He wanted to be he wanted to he wanted to be a hunter and a fisherman. He loved the outdoor life. And when he grew up, what he desperately wanted to be for a profession was in law enforcement. 
and he he had this streak where he loved to help people and um, the unfortunate thing was that even though he went into law enforcement in uh, North Georgia, he kept shooting himself in the foot. Not not literally, fortunately, but um, but metaphorically, he was a, he was a terrible driver, and he would constantly get into accidents and started to annoy the sheriff that way. When he he eventually loses that job, he goes to a a private college up there in in North Georgia as well. And he's a little too by the book. He's a little overzealous for their taste. And they say, yeah, thank you for coming. We're we're actually going to go in a different direction. And so as the Olympic Games arrive in July of 1996, Richard Jewell realizes that no other police forces are going to be hiring. They're just getting ready for the Games. And so instead, he'll sign on as a security guard in Centennial Olympic Park, guarding the AT&T NBC Sound and Light Tower overlooking the main stage. And, and so we know what happens. The bomb goes off. And initially, he is deemed to be the hero, the guy who was pushing people away, telling them to get away. But things changed quickly. What was it that changed from when he was heralded a hero to a potential suspect? Calls started coming to the FBI. There are already been two major suspects who were FBI was looking at. But when calls came in on Richard Jewell, the president of a college where he'd worked as a campus cop, that call came in through his chief of police. Other just odd things started coming in, like Richard Jewell asking during the construction of Centennial Park whether a tower, not the one he was guarding the night of the blast, but another tower would withstand a blast. He asked if, uh, if told people to take a picture of me, I'll be famous. And part of what factored into thinking is in 1984 in the Los Angeles Olympics, a police officer actually planted a fake bomb, claimed to be a hero, and then was exposed as a fraud. So a lot of things came up. Well, was there a natural bias by the media against him because he was overweight, because he talked with a Southern drawl? I mean, was, was it easy to pick on him? I think it was easy for a lot of people to pick on him, not just the media, but certainly um, the media who knew very little about law enforcement and had very few sources. And so they were relying on other people's reporting. We kind of look at this guy, you know, as the New York Post called him, a failed fat sheriff's deputy, or they also called him the Village Rambo. And Jay Leno on The Tonight Show refers to him as the unit doofus, you know, in the, and, and says, um, and talk, talking about the Olympics, says, and, and, you know, he says, so what is it about the Olympic Games that brings out the the fat, stupid guys, referring to the, to uh, Sean Eckhart, who whacked Nancy Kerrigan. And, uh, you know, so there was this profiling on the part of the media, and uh, it didn't serve anybody particularly well. How did he handle the fame and exposure? Uh, initially, like most people would, a little deer in the headlight, especially when he went into on CNN at the very start. But he... He enjoyed it, I think, for a couple of days, two, three days. But the uh, the fame was short-lived. The exposure was uh, horrifying when he was identified as, as the suspect, and not so much by the initial story as what came afterwards. As Kevin said, the village Rambo failed that deputy sheriff, all of that. And that was tough on him, tough on him, on his mother. Uh, they they lived in a uh, an apartment that became a prison to the media and the FBI. So it was a uh, tough days. 
23 years later, why is this getting attention now? What makes this story, the Richard Jules or even uh, Kathy Scruggs story, so appealing at this point? I mean, we've got the movie coming out. Obviously, something caught Clint Eastwood's eye as well as your eye uh, about this story. Well, I can't speak for Clint, um, but I will say that what attracted us to the story was, was two things. Number one is, it's the story of, a, of an unsung hero. It's a story of a man who should have a statue of himself in the center of Atlanta because of the number of people whose lives are saved during his, by his work in 1996. And he, never, he really never was hailed as a hero. He really was hailed as the former suspect. And we thought, we thought there was a great story behind the story. The other thing was that the echoes of that story today are very much alive. We, have, we're, we live in a social media era where speed is valued over accuracy. And this story in 1996 is very much kind of patient A in when that happened because of all these journalists in town etc. And you had this rush to judgment that um, was totally damaging to a person who's, um, who should have been known as a hero. To hook on to that real fast, back in 1996, when I'd written Richard Jewell's clearance letter, I thought it would just be a really interesting story, and I knew that I only knew half the story. When I teamed with Kevin Sal and my co-author five, five plus years ago, uh, we each found out we knew way less than half, and the, the twists and turns in the book uh, surprised us uh, more than anybody. Have you guys seen the movie? Is it is it pretty close to reality, or is it Hollywoodized? Yeah, we saw the movie uh, a couple of weeks ago when it premiered in L.A. Uh, the movie's great. Uh, it's it, it's not a documentary. It's a movie, and it's entertaining. But in the main, as far as the themes that come out, and particularly as far as Richard Jewell, what he went through and his mother went through, it is spot on. WGN-TV's Dean Richards sat down with Clint Eastwood to talk about the film. We've got a link on the website. Take a look at his review of the movie. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Quest for Gold. Next week, we're talking to softball player Monica Abbott. The former Chicago Bandit is hoping to turn her 2008 silver medal into gold at Tokyo. She was in Chicago this week. You can hear that interview only on Quest for Gold and only at WGNRadio.com. I'm Ryan Burrow.